Welcome along to the How You Say It podcast with myself, Graham Colgar, and we are joined in the salubrious surroundings of the Glen Eagles townhouse in Edinburgh by a man who's not only just played for played international rugby for his country, but he's captain as well, moved into leadership, executive coaching, team building, communication, motivational speaker. Rory, is there anything you can't do? Plenty. Plenty. <laughs> You've named a few things that I'm okay at, but there's plenty that I'm rubbish at. Well, I've got Rory Lawson here, uh, a man whose voice you might be familiar with if you've been listening or watching any rugby over the last, what, how many years have you been on the commentary? team now well, behind the game for 10 so not game. far off that yeah, yeah. yeah so it's fantastic to get you here Rory and obviously talking about communication and a man who's as I said represented your country at the top level at international for uh, international rugby and then captained them you must know a thing or two about communicating and leadership yeah, I'd like to think so. Um, I'll be, I'll be, you know, always, always learning. I think yeah. one of the one of the key things is is that when when you look at it, communication, you've always got to keep moving the dial, and there is no single way of communicating that lands with with everybody. You know, yeah. if you're delivering a message in one manner, some people it will land with one hundred percent. Others will it may not land with. Yeah. So I think that's one of the one of the great things about communication is understanding who's your audience, who are you trying to land things with, and communication is also two ways because it's it is about talking, but also there's a massive part of communication is about listening. So you know, and that carries across the board from from broadcasting to on-field communication to business communication to keynote speaking, all of that stuff, you've got to have that dynamic between what you're listening, what you're hearing, and then what are you saying. Absolutely. I mean, whenever you speak to somebody who started out in sport and who became a professional sportsman, sportswoman, athlete, it's always interesting to see where was the starting point for that. Now, you grew up in a household that was surrounded by sport because not only was your grandfather, Bill, Mac the great Bill McLaren, was known as the voice of rugby. He was a PE teacher down in the borders, a rugby coach at one point as well. But also your, your own father was a professional rugby player as well. So being in that environment, was that just a destined path for you to, to follow in the family footsteps, so to speak? Well, I suppose, yeah, I suppose so. I, you know, when I reflect back... Papa, if you're talking communications, one of the great uh, public communicators yeah. when it comes to sitting behind a mic, didn't necessarily love it when he was in front of a crowd. Right. So actually, he was still brilliant at it, but it was that wasn't his comfort zone. Hmm. Um, Dad really, you know, was was yes. Uh, an amateur international rugby That's player right. at that time because obviously rugby only went professional long after his his career ended ended but he was an international rugby player with Scotland played a load of times for the Barbarians mm -hmm. um, but also whilst doing a job and he had worked he worked himself into senior roles in businesses whereby he was leading teams and therefore communication was a factor mm -hmm. but I guess you know communication for me growing up was the warmth of being at home. So, you know, around mum and dad mm. and big brother Gregor, younger sister Lynn's. Um, and, you know, the typical, if I was to sum it up, it was typically it was positive. You know, the, there was a positivity to the communication that you got in amongst the, you know, the telling offs for being a little, <laughs> a little shit at times. Pardon my French. But yeah, um, you know, I think on the whole, my, one, one big th thing from my learnings is, this kind of optimist, positive outlook that mum and dad mm. had on on life in general, and therefore that I I kind of grew around, and that's one of the ways that I 
think I've, uh, you know, one of the things that I think I bring when I reflect back now with the leadership work that I do, that that probably limited me at times because I'd find positive in times whereby sometimes you've got it in, in sport or, you know, in studies or yeah. whatever relationships whereby you've actually got to call things out for not being okay. Mm. Stop trying to find the good when actually things aren't good. So that's, you know, it's one of the things that, again, reflecting, evolving over time, you you kind of learn and adjust along the way. Absolutely. I mean, like you've mentioned your, your grandfather, your papa, Bill McLaren, and as we've said, that the voice of sport, the voice of rugby in, in many households, even to this day, the clips that we see that we're, we're now, uh, as we're recording this, it was the first week of the Six Nations and you can't go the Six Nations without seeing an old clip of something happening, a try being scored and the, the commentary over it is is your grandfather's voice. It's, it's, it's something that everybody reflects back and remembers those, those great times. I remember the... Well, what was it? It was the try that Scotland scored in 1999 from kickoff against Wales at Murrayfield. It was uh, John Leslie. John Leslie, I remember that really, really well. And as a youngster watching that, it was just incredible. But for a man who who, who dedicated so much time to the sport, it was really about the preparation that he put in before. That's the stories that everyone talks about. Is the I've heard people saying about he would even be down to look at this, the shape, they would go down to training to see even the shapes and sizes of each individual player so that he would know from the commentary gantry in the stadiums, he would be able to recognise somebody who was maybe on the ground or who didn't have their back to him so he couldn't see the number, but he'd be able to see a distinctiveness about them. He, was it playing cards he used as well yeah, to yeah. try and memorise players' names? And of course the famous um, sort of preparation sheets, sheets yeah. the big sheets that he would have with this tiny little scrolled writing. How important when when you were growing up, was that emphasised to you about the preparation that he would put in, the work that he actually put in, so that for those hour and a half on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, he would be able to commentate the way he did? Well, it's, it's fundamental. It was, it was right at the core of, uh, of him as a person mm -hmm. and driven through this idea of serving other people. So he was, he was driven... He, he was went to World War Two as a twenty-one-year-old to serve yeah. his country. He came back, contracted tuberculosis, found himself in, um, in initially in journalism, and then got pulled in when someone fell sick to commentate on a on a on a game. Uh, you know that this was this was fifty years <laughs> prior to him finishing his career. Yeah. Um, but for him, I guess it's you know it's framed by mindset. So his mindset was he needs to serve the audience in delivering what they need on a Saturday afternoon. And I often talk with businesses about, uh, you know, the values of, a, of, of the business, the mm -hmm. core values. And typically when you look around or, or the mission of, a, of businesses and you look around and you see how much the, the behaviours within the organisation reflect the, the desired mission and vision yeah. that you want everyone to latch onto. Now, Papa was not necessarily an employee of the BBC, but he was a, he was very loyal to the BBC for over 50 years. And the, the BBC's mantra is inform, educate and entertain. Right. So for him, his role became, he needed to have done the preparation that allowed him to inform, educate and entertain the people who are watching the game. And boy, did he do that Oof. well. But it was... It comes from preparation. You know, he would long before, before you know, professional commentary, he would pre prepare like a professional because he knew within himself that he wanted to be 
the best commentator around and deliver the best commentary that he could. And you mentioned it, it, you know, it started on the Monday of a match week whereby the teams wouldn't have been named, Mm -hmm. but he was already starting to do the preparation into the the history of the fixture, the key people, the the what what had happened in the previous weeks leading into it that may become part of the narrative on the day. He would then when the teams were named, he'd start getting into the the detail of the players, what they looked like, um, the the running gait, the whether they taped their their heads or their knees, because you know, bearing in mind that when he first started commentary, he wouldn't have had a monitor in the commentary no, box. So a lot of the time he's having to judge and make calls on people from 70 metres away or however far away he would be in the commentary box. So he needed that small detail. Um, and it was on radio that he would have learned his trade. Yeah. So by the, the the dynamic of a radio means that you've got to be able to get into the detail of being able to bring to life the picture that he saw through mm-hmm. his eyes and allow people listening in to see that same picture. So that was where, you know, the preparation that he put into, put, into things... Um, allowed it, gave him that platform. And then it was the uniqueness of his voice and his turn of phrase and the way that he could, you know, weave the rich tapestry oh. of, a, of a game of sport. And it, uh, to be brutally honest, at times, a rubbish game of sport, <laughs> but he made it entertaining and engaging for people who were listening or watching um, because he viewed that as being his job. And of I course. think the preparation was right at the core of, of everything and it allowed him to go and deliver what was needed and you mentioned the big sheets the big sheets have over a thousand pieces of data and information wow. on that he may need to dip into at times a lot of it was the writing down of that information gave a process of going into his mind mm-hmm. so by doing that and then reflecting on it reading on it um, and preparing for the game he would get that information in and then on occasion he would need to dip in and look at a stat that he knew was in there that maybe uh, wasn't something that he thought he'd use, but he knew he had in his back pocket, mm. and then he'd dig into it. And I think that's just the was the the amazing part of it. And one of the great things that I've seen you talk about legacy, and you know, Papa's still referred to as the voice of rugby. But I speak to you know I've spoken since to guys like Nick Mullins and Andrew Cotter and yeah. Miles Harrison, and Mark Robson, and you know lo- lots of lots of these commentators who were I guess the next cab off the rank or close close behind, and they now prepare, albeit with some mo- modern nuances, yeah. prepare in a similar way. Of course, um, and I think it says everything you need to know about about Papa. Absolutely, I mean one of the things I really like I was at, I was at a tour at Murrayfield uh, last year, and they've still got the bust of of your grandfather at your papa at the front door because one of the things that he would do is he would be at the front door at Murrayfield welcoming the teams and again it was him almost getting a close-up look at who people were and being able to sort of say that's your so-and-so I know who you are that's what you look like and things like that when you look back then you've mentioned the word reflection quite a lot of the time and reflection is really really important but when you're a youngster growing up around that it's easy to take that for granted and then when you get older and you enter the world that you're in particularly now when you leave the professional game and and you're in the the sort of the big bad world out of sport so to speak did it give you a completely new appreciation for that hard work that he put in and was it something that you wanted to carry on into your your life throughout the throughout the world after sport yeah well I guess if I start with the reflection bit I was rubbish at it it's a learn it's a learned practice mm. I think the nature of being young 
and growing up is you're always looking for what's next, what's next, what's next. And then actually when you come into sport, it, it was about, right, you've just played a game. Ref, the, the reflection is what was that performance like? How do I get better and move on? Hmm. But you were always forward thinking, next challenge, how do I get better? Next challenge, how do I get better? Win or lose, how do we get better? And But in that regard, I was poor at, at times at being in the moment and reflecting on what on what has happened uh, other than where do I get better yeah. or, or you know what did I do not so well that I could improve or uh, for next time and in in many ways you know if I if I look back at my sporting career I would have been better if I had taken more time to pause and reflect and reset and go again uh, and then the biggest area that I, I look at that's passed is is actually when I got injured and went from sport one day to not sport the next day I didn't take the time and prioritize reflecting on what had happened I was immediately into Christ like I'm in this new world what am I going to do how do I move as fast as I can in that world and actually that's something where I, if I had my time again that would be the time at which I would go back now knitting that into, you know, Papa and the environment I grew up in, you know, dad playing international rugby, Papa doing his thing, so much support from family around my ambitions and mm. so on, you know, looking up to my brother who was a great athlete. Yeah. He was at, you know, Heriot's when I signed, uh, when I joined Heriot's from school, he was at Edinburgh Uni, you know, at the same time. So he's three years older than me. So, has guided me a lot through uh through through all of that stuff and but i think for i knew when i came out of sport that i wanted to stay in the sport in some way mm -hmm. shape or form and i'd and i knew that that was going to be an opportunity if it arose in the media and as part of the press release of finishing up my career I detailed my desire to stay involved in the game through right. through broadcast. And as it turned out, I was lucky enough to get an opportunity with Sky, who had the premiership and the championship mm. at the time and got an opportunity there to go and go and do some stuff. And from there, you know, it's... Uh, some people think that it's my job. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Which, yeah. Because it is public-facing. It's, it's now something that I've got a huge passion for. I love doing. It's a privilege, you know, to coin Papa's... Papa's uh, comment at the end when reflecting on his career in broadcasting, what's the best thing about the career? I didn't have to pay to go to major <laughs> sports events, yeah, right? Yeah, and yeah. that's, you know, it's a real privilege to do that. Um, but there are very few people who get to do it as their job nowadays. And it's always got to be something for me that uh, is a, something I'm passionate about. I love doing, I really feel a, a responsibility in trying to deliver the the a high quality products mm. to whoever's listening or watching to to allow them to enjoy whatever happens on field that to yeah. a little little bit greater extent i mean it's interesting we spoke to pat nevin and he talked about when he was writing his books and he said that same thing as yourself when you're in that high performance sporting environment you never look back you've always got to look forward when you finish the game as you've mentioned don't it's win, lose, draw, you're on to it, it's next week, it's next week, it's next week. Until he sat down and he said, writing a book and being able to actually look back and enjoy moments. And he said that 
maybe he looks back and said, should have enjoyed it more at the time or, or, or sometimes in difficult situations he's maybe able to go back and say, I could have handled that better if I'd had a bit more time to deal with that. You work now in business, but you also work in sport. You've taken the, the context of sport into business and you sometimes take the context of business into sport. From your own personal experiences, how important is it to then try and get that into the culture of sportsmen and women to say, you need to look back at times. It can't always be about the next game. You've got to spend a bit of time on reflection because it helps you grow and develop as a person. Yeah, I think it's, it's massive. I think for for sports people you know having having been in that scenario as much as anything um you know if you if you let's put it into three pillars live, living in the past or reflecting on things that have happened mm -hmm. being present and in the moment and then looking forwards only when you're doing the training do you typically are you typically in that moment mm -hmm. or you're playing games are you typically in that moment Otherwise, you're sort of thinking about what's just happened or yeah. thinking about what's going to happen. And it's it's the nature of it. You know, you've got to, if you're on field in sport, you've got to be present, focusing on the next job. But, you know, as, as a decision maker, you've also got to be anticipating what might happen and, and and shape your decisions around uh, around that. But, you know, I think, I think I mean, I, I don't know. I speak with I speak with a number of the, the current players mm. and, uh, you know, former players and everybody's a bit different. Um, I, I would just being, you know, be you hear Johnny Wilkinson talk, yeah, and he was always looking about the next thing and That's occasionally right. reflected back. And I think it's all, you know, to say to say you get as much joy or you're as present in the moment doing the dishes as you ever, you know, <laughs> as, as you are doing something that you're you're really passionate about. Like it would take me a long a long distance to get to get there yeah, and I'm yeah. not sure that's necessarily like I'm quite happy with doing the dishes being a chore yeah. uh, and something <laughs> yeah, that I don't yeah, enjoy yeah. but it's and it's a necessary it's a, it's a necessary thing um, I, I just think that for for the current crop of players there's there's a natural tendency if you pause to think about what might be next that you get into what happens after a career which is anxiety inducing of course you know because for most people they don't have a scooby-doo what the next bit is going to be um and i think that's 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 a big challenge um and equally preparing for that so if you think about anybody who wants to master their trade if they're inviting in something else to do that may prepare them better for when that trade is no longer mm -hmm. needed for them the danger is that they think they take their eye off the ball of the thing that they're well, trying to master. But it is such a necessary thing. You know, the number of guys now that, you know, what you do now away from from the sport and it's, you know, obviously, you know, for those who with kids or partners, wives, whatever, whatever it may be, it's, you need to put energy in there as well. Yeah. But being able to try and safeguard that cliff edge you know try and smooth out what is a cliff edge when you leave sport and having been been there and, walk, and walked that path and jumped off the cliff edge it's it's uh, you know it's it's a challenge it certainly is and as you said it's it's a you know you've been in there and in the scrum half position if you make a bad pass the next ruck or the next scrum you can't think about the bad pass that you've just done you've just got to move on to the next one you mentioned johnny wilkinson or, yeah. and you see even like so finn russell playing for scotland and you know, it's been sort of highlighted in the Six Nations Full Contact documentary on Netflix, which your voice features on <laughs> occasionally as well. But they always talk about if Finn Russell makes a mistake, you'll just see him laughing and smiling. 
because he tries to put that behind him and move on to the next one. But at the same time, trying to encourage people to that who have been trained to just forget about it, move on to the next thing and, and work on the next thing, to actually have to be thinking about yeah. moving that reflection process and yeah. also thinking ahead. It's, it's a real big challenge and that's a sort of, that'll make a massive mindset shift as well for people as well, wouldn't but it's it? Gotta be, it's also got to be collective. Yeah. You know, I think it's, it's really easy to say, oh, flush it. You know, you've made a mistake, flush it, next job. Mm-hmm. But actually, you know, as human beings, we're not wired yeah. that way. You know, we, we don't like making mistakes. We don't like failing. So naturally, we, we, we attach ourselves onto that. And it's very difficult just to, just to flush it and move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. So, and this is, you know, if you link it into culture, leadership, teamship, whatever it is, it's, it, the mindset has to be shared across the team. Mm-hmm. Because you need to know that if you're, if you're letting it go, that there's not somebody else on your team who's holding a grudge and is pissed off and is thinking about the mistake you yep. just made that may compromise the team. And that's the same. In, and, you know, you talk, talk about psychological safety. Yep. You know, the ability to make mistakes in, in whatever environment and not feel like you're going to be punished for it mm-hmm. um, is, is something that you see high-performing teams, are there's a psychologically safe environment. In high-performing in high sport, much like in business, I see the, the high-performing teams are one whereby there's an expectation, there are standards set that everybody is pushing for. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also an acknowledgement that if you're pushing hard, mistakes will be made. Of course. Um, and that there needs to be that environment to be able to speak up at times and, and make mistakes at times. Mm-hmm. But it is such a difficult dynamic to achieve. You know, there's got to be a whole lot of trust within there. Communication is a big factor within there. You know, you've got to have that dialogue and communication within people that makes the, the implicit things explicit and you get them out on the table and you're candid and you people are allowed to talk about, you know, where they are at any given moment. Mm-hmm. None of us are, you know, are, are bulletproof. We need to be able to share vulnerabilities. And that's actually something that, you know, Rory Best talking about, how we shape the the sports programs um, from business. He actually highlighted that vulnerability in leadership was one of his greatest strengths. Yeah, the ability to speak up and say you don't know, you don't have the answers. Go to other people and and find out what the answers might be. Get everyone around the table and say, I've not got the answer for this. Let's spitball some ideas and find out a collective answer. And that gave him the tools to then step forwards and make a decision at the time. But it's something that lots of people view vulnerability as weakness. And I don't think that needs to be the case. And do you see that more in sport or business now? Because it's Kianis is the business that you have that then what you're doing is effectively you work in you work in sport and you also work in the business world as well in executive positions and you work with team teams to grow teamwork culture and, and executive coaching and stuff like that. So do you think are people becoming more vulnerable in the business world? Is that a faster acceleration of that? Or do you see it more in the sporting environment? Uh, it, it differs. Like, yeah. all, like all of these things, it differs from individual to individual mm-hmm. and team to team and business to business and culture to culture. The one thing that I would say is that we prioritise providing an environment whereby people can have both comfort in being vulnerable. And that doesn't happen straight away. You know, for us going into work with a new team or a new individual, you've got to build trust. Mm-hmm. You've got to be in a, create a, uh, an environment whereby people feel 
comfort and safety in w where they are to be able to share vulnerabilities. And that, that takes time, but we try and do that from the get-go. Yeah. You know, we try and create an environment whereby people, um, uh, you know, the, the, the strap line, you know, for me has always been making leadership human. Mm. It's one of the joys of doing the work that I do is that actually we're sector and business business agnostic because it's about the human beings who are making up the team or the human being who, who sat on the other side of the the table or you know now occasionally virtually through yeah. through the screen but being able to build a dynamic there that as quick as you can whereby it's trusted people can be vulnerable but all with the underpinned understanding that everyone around the table or the individual on the other side wants to continue to grow and improve and unlock potential, either unlock uh, performance within themselves that where they're not, they aren't at the moment, but they know they can yeah. be, or unlock potential that they may not even believe they've got to take them onto a different realm. And that's individual, collective and culturally, yeah. And it, but it doesn't really matter what environment they're in. Yes, their environment will shape, so, you know, if you're in a, if you're in a toxic culture whereby you can't speak your mind, yeah. you're going to feel vulnerable speaking your mind unless you're very comfortable, you know, being cast out and, you know, putting a, in an uncomfortable position. Equally, I've got seen other environments whereby you've got a CEO who's very comfortable being vulnerable and that builds trust and psychological safety and others. And there are lots in between all of those scenarios. And I guess the great... The, the the joy that I get from doing it is that you're finding out where people are when you start working with them and of then you, you go through this it sounds a bit cliched and cheesy but you do go through this journey with them mm -hmm. to hopefully take them on this this exponential growth journey that you know you hold the mirror up to them see where they're currently operating individually collectively culturally organizationally and then you take them from day one to however long down down the line and you know they become hopefully more rounded people yeah. human beings that, that carries beyond their their work um you know whether it's on field in in office whatever it may be i mean it's it, it's really interesting when i get to meet these people people like yourself um and talk about communication and a lot of it in leadership and things like that and as i say i'm a huge sports fan which is why the majority of the people i've interviewed have been people who've lived and worked through sport we often look for the secret sauce. Everyone's always looking at the secret sauce, but every single person I speak to, it always boils down to people and it always boils down to people skills, which is why communication is so important in these situations. You can look at it as technical as you like and have we lost that ability over the last 15, 20 years where everything became about the technicalities, everything became about the stats and facts, everything became about the information that we get through the internet coming through and social media and everything like that. But I mean, my grandfather was a, 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 a malt barley, a barley maltster, and uh, yeah. he bought barley off five farmers, yeah. and all he said was, people buy for people. Yeah. Right, and sometimes it was just a case of sitting in somebody's front room in a farm, having a plate of soup, having a blether, having a chat, and then going, right, here's my price for the barley that year one. Is, is that okay? And when you strip it all back, as I said, with management, you hear football managers, you hear all these people, it seems like the secret sauce that everyone's looking for is just be better at managing people. 
Mm. Is that something that you've maybe seen as well when, when sport as well, when it comes to getting all the information, but actually the manager that, or the coach that's able to just get in between your ears and understand you fully and get the best out of you, mm. the rest takes care of itself. There's, I mean, we, we could spend all day talking about this, Graham, <laughs> in, all, in all honesty, because I think, you know, you, you mentioned the the data, the world of data, mm. the, the world of information, insights, um, all, all of the, the different information available to us, you know, business, the sports data, you know, everything is out there. You know, you've got... You, I did. Um, I did a program on on Sunday night, reflecting on the on the Wales Scotland game, and there was an algorithm there that said that based on the the field positions of the set pieces that Scotland and Wales both had throughout the eighty minutes, Wales should have won the game thirty two twenty one. Right, and naturally you've got a bunch of folk at home who are saying, "Nah, that doesn't didn't. make that doesn't make any sense." Uh, like the scoreline was a scoreline. Mm-hmm. You're taking away from the human element. So mm-hmm. I guess that's a prime example whereby if if sport was an algorithm, we'd be able to predict every outcome. Yeah, of course. Now, sport is something that lots of people latch themselves onto, like yourself, mm. because it's an escape from the day-to-day on a number of occasions, or it's something that is tightly attached to, as a youngster growing up, you know, searching down something that you thought you'd want to do that mm-hmm. just carries through your life. And it's for you know people who go to Murrayfield on Saturday will go there just loving the passion, the people, the players, the atmosphere, the occasion, the, the drink. event. A <laughs> drink or two. Um, exactly. And, and I think that, you know, but at the centre of it is, is people. Yeah. And we, look, again, if, if I just look, like, I mean, I, I could talk about sports. So I was, uh, when I was at Gloucester, Newcastle, there was a phase whereby data was going through the roof. Mm-hmm. The, the number of data points that were captured within matches was increasing, whether it's your ta- tackle stats uh, going from either a missed or made tackle to, to gain line, collision win, dominant tackle, turnover tackle, whatever it might be. So you ended up with you know, six variances of a tackle. You know, your, your, your kicking distance hang time all that stuff was measured and I remember it, but it became almost paralyzing to when when presented because people didn't know the coaches didn't really know what the data was actually telling them yeah. and it probably took away from the human element and human decision making element and they try and sport you know now rugby the stats would tell you that the team who kick more in a game win 75% of the time, whatever yeah. that, you know, something along those lines. Now, that doesn't just mean that every time you get the ball as a team, you kick it. Yeah. Because if you do that, you win more games. It takes away the fact that, you know, you see Finn with his crossfield kick pass. You see the little dinks over the top. You see the high balls. You yeah. see the long kicks. You see the kicks to con- con- contest. Now, all of those are feeding in. But it just, and some people might look and say, well, if you kick the ball more, you're going to win the game. Yeah. So, for me, I think data and in business, data the data is there to tell you something, and it's 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 there to be able to guide you in a decision making process. But the, I'd say very infrequently is it the only thing that you're making a decision on. Mm. And I, for me, I, you know, I think the the human side of things is something that I I love. Um, 
I worked with a guy recently, and a, a, an example would be actually he, we used the analytics to give him a bit of feedback from his direct reports and, and peers. And his direct reports highlighted the fact that he didn't use data mm-hmm. as part of uh, his delivery to the team. So data didn't matter to him, or their perception was that data didn't matter to him. The reality was when I held, when I held the mirror up to him on this, he said he, he does the data work beforehand right. and that informs his decision. Now, he doesn't communicate it as part of the decision, but what that did allow him to do is understand the perspective of others mm. in their decision-making process that might be shaped on that. So he then started to communicate, I've done the research, I've looked at the data and pulling together that in with my intuition, my experience, the framework that I'm going to work in, this is the decision that I've come to. Okay. Um, on the flip side of the data, if you're talking about inspiring people, you know, pulling people together to, to no matter what the role is, to push for the common good and mm-hmm. delivery of outcomes, there is nothing better than bringing that to life through story. Yeah. And, you know... Uh, it's Maya Angelou who says, people will forget what you say, people will, will forget what you do, but they'll remember how you make them feel. Yeah. Something along those lines. But and the the emotion that story can bring to life is something that I think is often overlooked now. And it's a it's a really key component of a lot of what we do because it makes sense of complex things. It gives people a deeper understanding as to the sort of why are you doing things yeah, yeah. Um, and what is it that we're looking, paints a picture of what it is they're looking to deliver without the the potential clunkiness of getting into the data and the mechanics of it. I mean, it, 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 people always say about how we, we, as human beings, we strive for context, which is why you get a lot of, um, you know, people coming up with these theories about why, you know, s- something's something's happened so it's got to be because of x y and z and and until you actually know the facts you'll never know what the context of that is but i suppose being able to create a context for people to make better understanding of something and i'm listening to what you're saying we're talking about the data and you're talking about all these data points i'm thinking what would your your papa your grandfather have been able to do with all that but he did do that because what he was effectively doing was he had the data with all these big sheets that he had, and he was then able to tell the story to the listener as it was happening, using analogies, metaphors, and and kind of descriptive language that he was able to do. It, it is fascinating, but it's about when we when we look at communicating and and coaching and coaches. When you look back over your career, are there particular coaches that stand out in through your memories from whatever stage of your of your career, playing career from as a kid playing for your school to your professional career and onwards. There are loads, Graham. I think, you know, everyone, everybody, well, lots of people ask about, you know, who's the best coach? Mm-hmm. Who's the best coach you've ever had? The reality is, is that it would be a, a combination of a number of the features that came from a num- from a lot of them. You know, if I think about the the earliest influences, you know, you know, having dad around yeah. and, and Gregor around and, you know, chucking a ball about in the garden, I'd mm-hmm. learn loads from them. But I think... My, my, you know, my schooling days had uh, two PE teachers, uh, rugby coaches at school, and and John Foster, the, uh, both of whom, incredibly sadly, have passed away. Right. Uh, John Foster and Colin Mackay, mm-hmm. um, who were both amazing uh, coaches. They they set standards. It was about you know socks pulled up, garters on, black boots. Yeah. T- 
double double bow your laces, look the part, jersey tucked in. Um, and then the standards they set within the within the, uh, the the their teaching coaching were incredibly high, but they had a, a warmth to them as well. Right. Um, we talk talk within within Kianis a lot about warmth and edge. Yeah, yeah. And it's something that lands really well with people because it's they they can recognise it in in the the people who they've they work around, they've mm-hmm. grown up around, and so on. And what I think a lot. Of, for me, the best people are those who balance that warmth and edge. And that's what we see high-performing cultures are those who are by warmth. So that positivity, the psychological safety, the the nurturing, supportive mm-hmm. environment is in balance with the results, outcomes, high performance, standards, candor. So where both of them are high. So when they're in balance and both are high, you see high-performing individuals and teams. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think... You know, if I think of Dean Ryan at Dean Ryan at Gloucester was edge edgy. You know, he was he was six foot six, gnarly back rower. Lots of people of his vintage would say he was the most horrible bloke to play against. You know, <laughs> title winning, title winning, uh, Premiership title winning player yeah. with Newcastle Falcons in a back row with you know Pat Pat Lamb in back, back in behind Doddy Weir and George yeah. Graham and in the team with Inga Tuigamala and Matt Burke and Johnny Wilkinson and all these guys. You know, Some big like, names in that Big, big team. names. Yeah. Um, but he was a horrible bloke, an enforcer. Um, but I respected him so much. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you knew that he he would give you the, the chance and he'd give you the platform to succeed. He'd expect high standards um, and he wouldn't have a whole lot of warmth about him, but he knew, you knew under the surface of it that he cared. Mm-hmm. Um you know, at, the, at that time, there was a really nice yin and yang with with Brian Redpath, who you know, yeah. you know, a, a hero of mine growing up, former Scotland scrum half and That's captain, right. um, Brushy and Carl Hogg, who was a, a teammate of his, Melrose as as youngsters. Uh, Hoggy was an assistant coach at Edinburgh, who's Jim Telfer's nephew. Oh right, yeah. so you know, Hoggy basically thought that Creamy was, you know, Jim Telfer was. <laughs> the way that you needed to be yeah because that he had had so much success mm-hmm. so hoggy was all edge all effort all fight brushy was this like little mischievous yappy scrum half who was all about warmth you know arm around your shoulder yeah. pat on the bum you know driving standards but um but also did it did it with with a huge amount of warmth and that dynamic down there was was a really good dynamic albeit you know, Brushy had his edgy side at times as well. He was a fierce competitor. Hate all of them hated losing. Yeah, yeah. So that was the dynamic that they struggled with. You know, come off the back of a loss, they were all doer, and yeah. you know, they they only delivered edge to you. Um, so that, that that as a trio, I think was was really great. Um, I think, but you know, when you talk about communication, when it comes to that, sport gave you the the un, gives you the natural culture whereby. Largely speaking, the vast, vast majority of guys you can look around and think, he's given his best, he's given his best, he's given his best. He wants to get better. He wants us all to get better. If, and if everyone's of that mindset, you're in a really fortunate position. Um, and you can you can challenge standards and you can challenge errors if the errors are based on attitude or effort. Mm-hmm. Never, never criticise a, a skill error if there's effort and attitude yeah, that's aligned yeah. to it because we're all human beings. Um but you know, I've got I've got a number of stories whereby high in, high intensity, high pressure environments. You know, half time, 
uh, and I won't I won't say the co- who the coach was that <laughs> uh, said this, but we were playing a game away uh, to sail sharks one Friday night, m- miserable winter's Friday night, and Freddie Burns, who went on to win the Premiership with Leicester, and um, you know he's 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 been around a, a load of clubs, uh, but he was a youngster at the time. Mm-hmm. He and I were scrum half standoff at the time. Uh, sail had. Sebastian Cheval, Jason White as their back row, Mark Cueto, Richard Wigglesworth, right. Charlie Hodgson, they were they were a good side. But we went up there and we were 6-3 down at halftime. It was a grotty day. And it was all about just trying to dominate field position. And you talk about communication. Um, the coach in charge on that day turned to Freddie and I, sat sat by side by side in this cold dressing room and said, Freddie, gun. I was nicknamed Young Gun then. When I got older, gun. He said... <laughs> He said, Burnsy, gun, listen, there's no grey areas. It's not black and it's not white. (laughs) And Freddie was sort of nodded as a 20 or 21 year old. And I was like, what does that mean? (laughs) No idea. So it's not, there's no grey areas, but it's neither black nor white. What does that mean to what we need to do? And in that moment, I thought, right, I, I think I've got clarity within myself, but I'm not sure what we're being asked to do. And thankfully, the follow through was... You know, a bit more detail around clarity around field position, build pressure, yeah. and then when it's on to play, we play. But you know, in that moment, in a high pressure environment, and in in a short period of the halftime window to after you've got fluids on board, yeah, and yeah. A, a little snack or whatever, that was the message that you got. You know, you're leaving an awful lot up in up in the air about what 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 lands in that regard. It's you know, there's a fascinating one. I've got, it's very similar. I mean. I did not play at a level anywhere near the level that you've played at. I was an amateur, very much with a capital A. Um, and I remember one of the first games for I played for Kirkcaldy Seconds. I was, we were playing away at Hamilton, horrible windy day. And I was, uh, I was a sub. And there was only three subs or something like that. And there was two front rowers, big heavy boys and myself. And uh, I was meant to be a back row. But I was only 17 or 18 at the time. All got got the full gear on, all the warm stuff, and I'm thinking this is perfect. Or maybe I'll get five minutes at the end. Kirkcaldy were winning quite comfortably at the time. There was like two tries in it, and just before half time, uh, the winger got a bit of a got a bit of a knock, and he was I'm struggling. And he's the coach, and he said, "Right, Graham, go and get warmed up." I thought, oh, "God Almighty, I don't want to play, and I don't want to play in the wing. Uh, it's the worst place I could be. Sort of like horrible windy day, and we were the wind was sort of in our faces in the second half. So basically. I'm getting changed while the halftime waters are going on board. Uh, at the side of the pitch, of course, we're not in this luxury of a dressing room or anything like that. And as I'm walking on, the uh, he was a standoff at the time, older guy, senior player, arm around me. They're going to kick everything down your throat, right? You get that ball and you kick it straight back at them. Okay, just get that ball. Don't care where it goes. Get the ball away. Right, okay. Second row comes to me, big old senior guy. He says, they're going to kick everything down your throat. You get that ball, put it into contact, and we'll do the rest to get the ball. <laughs> right. yeah. And it was this mixed communication. Yeah, yeah. First thing, ball came down. I looked up. The ball's bounced in front of me, first of all. It's gone over my head. I've gone back, grabbed it, looked up, thought, I'm going to kick it. Kicked it straight in the air, hit the wind, went straight behind me, and the guy came in and scored a, picked up the ball, scored a try between the posts. And it was a horrible moment, but I looked back, and... One of the interesting things is fast forward 10 years or so and the team Kirkcaldy were playing in a very big crunch match with relegation and stuff like that. And they went out and they were fired up, very, very fired up. I was at the game and I asked one of my pals, I says, what was the, what was the pre-match 
team talk because you guys came out fired up and he said we were just in the changing rooms on our own waiting and waiting and waiting the coach came in and he says five phases if it's not on get rid then he walked out again Mm -hmm. and you're going there wasn't paper getting stripped off the wall there wasn't any given Sundays there wasn't anything like that Mm -hmm. and it just shows you now you're seeing a lot of I spoke to Frank Dick about this as well I've spoken to Neil Lennon about it and I've said about the importance of keeping your information as simple as possible and as clear as possible so that when because i think as a as a sports fan mm. people often assume there's going to be and like i said i was at that game Kirkcaldy, and they came out fired up they'd done the work during the week and basically as i said the coach just knew five phases if it's not on get rid yeah and look there's there's so much that comes to my mind when you start talking about that and you know andy robinson who selected me more for Scotland than any other mm-hmm. any other coach and you know he he asked me to captain Scotland Robbo uh, had you know w- won the World Cup with Clive Woodward brought to life the the English game plan yeah. in, in that regard with you know a, a, a goal near of, of of English player and you know Robbo came in as head coach of Scotland and I you know I remember being in a decision in a in a leaders meeting I suppose and he essentially said right we want we want two set phases and then the ability to to play what we see and this this is something that carried through again if i had my time again i would step up step forward and say and challenge on that right. and, you know bring more bring more edge to the equation and and dig deeper into understanding exactly what it is that he meant by mm-hmm. that because when when i looked back at it and it, we did this after having played the game that we went into it with this approach and, and i said to robert look we need to in the review session. We well, we, we'd got into the game with this idea, and for anyone who's not a, a, a rugby listener, yeah, um, you've got scrum lineouts and kickoffs as which are called set pieces, and typically from there, if you're if you have the ball, you will try to move closer to the opposition's line either through kicking or passing and running. So, and each time you, there's a tackle and there's a ruck, it beca- it's a it's a phase. So he said, right, we'll do two of those. Mm-hmm. And then we play what we see. Okay, so if if their guys dropped off or, um, and there was space in, in their defence, we'd attack the space. If the guys had been pulled up and there was space in behind, we might kick, whatever mm-hmm. it might be. Now, the, the only issue with that is that you've got 15 players on the field at any one time and they've all got different brains, they're playing different positions and they see a different picture. Yeah. And that was where, you know, I pulled Robbo up on the Monday and I said, you've got... Jim Hamilton, who's closer to the, the, the sun than I am at six foot eight, <laughs> um, is has has had to push in a scrum and get up and lift his head and get round the corner. All he's thinking about is am I am I smashing a ruck, am I looking to carry, or am I am, or am I looking to find space? You've got Ewan Murray, who's even further forward in the scrum, who's basically had a ton of weight yeah. going through his shoulders and neck up at, at prop. He's got to get up and he's th- he's just wondering trying to remember his name because of the exhaustion <laughs> of that area. And he, if he's in the picture, he's going to see a different picture. Then you've got someone like Dan Parks or Phil Godman, who's one position outside me, mm-hmm. who's going to get the opportunity to lift their head and see things. But it's for me, that was where the clarity, you need clarity. Yeah. And yes, you need context, but you need people to understand their individual role with delivering mm-hmm. what, what it is for the, for the whole team. Uh, and I think for me, it's... That's where 
communication is often about listening as much as it is talking. Yeah, and course. what Rob probably missed in that stage was to say, right, you know, go through the two phases, pause. What, what did you see here, Jim? What did you see here, Ewan? What did you see here, Parksy? What did you see here, Rory? And then you're able to actually get the different perspectives that say, is that an approach that we can go with? Um, or do we need to look at doing things differently? I suppose like that element of creativity and thinking on your feet is great to have. Uh, Frank Dick talked about uh, a situation with the England team on a tour in Argentina where they purposely didn't let the... When, when the England team were expecting to go to their training session on tour in Argentina, the bus just never arrived. So what the, the situation was, Eddie Jones and themselves have set it up to say, let's just see how they how they work that out and we want to try and get them to think so that when they're on the pitch when things aren't going well or when things are going well but that element but at the same time understanding that everybody has their own individual role and responsibility in that process because as you said if you've got 15 different brains you've got 15 different potential ideas which is sometimes good to have when you're wanting to have outside thinking uh, cognitive diversity and stuff like that but at the same time it's finding that right balance when Actually, I know what my role is here. Yeah. And look, I, I talk about 15 people. The reality is that the decision makers are on field. There's probably three who have a direct decision as to, to what's going to ha- what's going to happen in any given period. The, the scrum half who's going to be first into mm-hmm. the ball, he chooses whether to hit the forward runners or, or put the ball through the, the fly half or who, a back's hands um, or run themselves. Yeah. And you've got the, the receiver in that regard and they, they're in that decision-making process. So they're the ones that need to be able to play what you see. But nowadays you've got to have everybody else on the same page. Mm-hmm. And I think this is where, you know, whether in business or sport, you've got to know what the frameworks are that you're, that you're a part of. Yeah. And then we talk about it's a, it's a military term, actually, that, that is the prize whereby you talk about strategy or strategic intent. What mm. is it that we're looking to deliver? Then you bring that to life through the power of story. So paint yeah. the picture through story that makes it more straightforward to, to people. And then you talk about the freedoms and constraints within that. So mm. where are the constraints that we're going to hold you to? So where are the guardrails that we want you to operate within? And then, but then also within that, you've got the freedom to express yourself. And that's mm-hmm. in any job, in any walk of life, in any role. We've all got things that we're brilliant at that we need to do more of. We've all got areas that we need to grow in mm-hmm. that we need to get better at. And we've all got those areas that maybe aren't needed, that might be strengths, but there's no need to bring them into, yeah. into the equation. So that's the freedoms and constraints. Then you need the dialogue off the back of it, that back and forth that says, right, I've heard this, Graham. What does that, and now I'm thinking, for me, that means this, and you either agree or disagree, yeah. and you take the dialogue in that direction. But the prize is disciplined initiative, which is, sounds like an oxymoron, discipline and the initiative, but it's, it's being able to stay disciplined within the big picture, the yeah. overall strategy of what it is we're looking to deliver, but you've also got this freedom to play in and show the initiative that you have in that regard without... Um, damaging or um, putting at risk, uh, at um, unwarranted risk, yeah. the, the outcomes of what you deliver. And I think it's something that carries right across the board, business, sport. If you get those things in place, you've got the ability to create a bit of magic. That's fascinating. I want to go back to what you mentioned about warmth and edge, having that mm-hmm. different thing. Talking about being a truly authentic person and stuff like that, and everyone says authenticity is really, really important. Um 
two sides to it. If you're authentic and you're just a really nice, warm guy, and then one day you want to turn up and be like, no, I need to have the edge. Is that difficult for people to to suddenly go, what's he talking about? I know what he's like. He's the sort of, he's suddenly trying to be, or the other way, if you if you know you're you mentioned about your your one of the players that you played with who just was all edge, you would be really unsettled if this guy started trying to be nice to you and pouring you cups of tea and, and helping you out. So, is there a is there a situation or is there something that people can look at if they if they do this reflection that you're talking about and they become a little bit more aware? Maybe I'm a bit too warm and I need a bit more edge, but then finding that right balance, or maybe I'm just too edge and I need just to make it a little bit more warmer. Yeah, it's not an overnight. No, uh, you know, it's it's not something that you just click the fingers and you say, right. I've uh, typically I'm supportive, positive for people, optimistic, mm. and but tomorrow I'm going to go in and I'm going to beat the doors down and just going to focus on on outcomes, delivery, finances, yeah. you know, whatever it might be. Um, but it's for 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 me, I would say if you if you take yourself up in a drone view, whatever whatever you see mm-hmm. if you think that a shift is going to improve your performances as a leader uh, or the performance of others or the organization then it's not so much a choice it's an obligation mm-hmm. you've got you've got an obligation to change to enhance you or those who are your leading's performance mm-hmm. in that regard and you know we we use we use the self evaluation uh, data that we capture as a platform for dialogue. Yeah. So it becomes, and, but then it's also, we're not just giving people data and saying, Graham, you're, you know, you've, you've got an edge of 90, you've got warmth of 50, go away and work on your warmth. You know, <laughs> we're actually, we actually get into it. Right. What's, what's the challenge here? Yeah. How do, how do you go about changing? Where are the focus areas? Who's, who's that going to be with? When, when might that opportunity present itself? When, when can you create or could you create the first opportunity to maybe just dial up that, that warmth, that little bit, mm-hmm. to, make, to make a bit of a change? And the, it's, it's an iterative process over time. But when people start seeing the impact that it has, it's remarkable. I mean, I've got one of my old teammates, great, great pal Nick DeLuca mm-hmm. from, from, you know, from Scotland days, Edinburgh days, uh, Nick when, Nick, when he was playing, would be very edgy. He would, be, he would speak his mind. He would speak with candor. And some people struggled with it a bit. Uh, and, it, and, you know, he's now director of sport at Markiston mm-hmm. up, up, in, up in Edinburgh. And he is now, the warmth that he comes with is enormous. And he's gone through... Uh, a big shift himself and that that would be reflecting back on sport and that again will have been an iterative process but Nick and I you know we've we've spoken a bit about the the Kiana stuff and he engages with it in amongst you know his his desire to push himself to get better Mm -hmm. and now in his role he's got a a, um, obligation to grow the kids that he works with so for him uh, really interesting. We we actually did a call to a potential client um, a couple of months ago, and given that on field it would be all about edge and delivery yeah. and drive and candor, uh, we came off the call and Nick actually said to me, "I said, look, let's let's catch up and we'll go through we'll, we'll go through the how the call went and mm-hmm. so on." 
And I said, look, what, what, are, your, what are your thoughts on how the call went uh, the day after? And he said, well, he said, uh, Rory, how do you like to receive feedback? <laughs> and it was a remarkable question yeah, because yeah. he's the sort of guy. And, and then, you know, I, I naturally then said to him, uh, to the point, give it, give it yeah. to me straight. I want, I want your candor. And, but I want it done in a manner that says, I th- think this was great. This could have been done significantly better. This is how you would have done it. Mm-hmm. But and then for the next time we'll do X, Y, and Z. And then I fed back similarly. But that question in itself is something that all too often we don't take into yeah. account yeah. when it comes to warmth and edge, you know, um, and how we communicate. And we a lot of us are fixed in our ways. Whereas actually, if you think about that, if I said to you, you know, Graham, I, I want to have a word. How do you like to receive feedback? Yeah. And I then give you a voice and show you that I'm willing to listen. Make it nice and soft for me, please. Well, exactly, exactly. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to do that because that wasn't good enough. But, no, you know, it's, it gives you a sense of being heard. Yeah. And that, as a question, is something that is, it's something, it really caught me off guard, mm-hmm. but it's something that is a, is a really good platform to then, you know, warmth and edge is something that uh, I don't think we need to be stuck in our ways. Leadership behavior, behavior in general, is not mm-hmm. fixed. No. It's bloody difficult to change, mm-hmm. but the the prize for changing it is massive. And I think that's where, you know, looping right back to your question, uh, for me, if, if people are of a fixed mindset that they are who they are, mm-hmm. then that's a difficult thing to change. If people want to become better at what they're doing, you know, the impact that they have on others, the role that they deliver, the organization, the team, whatever it might be. And we're able to help them identify areas that they can get better. Then it's over to the individual to own that. And that's a big thing that we we try. If the individual owns the change, it's much more likely to, to continue to, you know, reward them mm-hmm. um, rather than being told, Graham, you need to do this. Yeah. You know, if I, if I build a sense of you... <clears throat> owning your own change and identifying for yourself where in your own context you can improve doing things that's that's pretty magic i mean a lot of that comes down to the the sort of golden word is awareness we've talked a lot about reflection but awareness is so important i talk about when we when we do the public speaking communication training courses and we're saying about awareness of yourself awareness of how you speak how you are what kind of speaker you are what you're doing when you're speaking but also awareness of the audience who you're speaking to how they're going to receive the message and stuff like that when you're talking about trying to change someone's behavior they have to first of all be aware of their own behavior first before they know what they need to change how difficult is that or how what 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 could somebody do to try and help somebody on the path to this behavioral change through creating awareness because everyone thinks they're great at what they do well, yes, uh, I think you know. I think uh, self awareness is is a fundamental building block of you know being wise, being effective yeah. um, in in any walk of life. I think mm-hmm. it's it's one. You know, when when do you think you became self aware? I, I say what about a year and a half ago. Really? Yeah, really, really worked on it. Uh, it was when I was doing the executive coach qualification yeah. where awareness was such, such a big thing. Listening became a big, yeah. big thing. And suddenly you realise, yeah, talk, what, how much do I talk? And reflection became a big, big part yeah. of that. So I would have to yeah. think back. And um, I'm thinking about your colleague that you're saying, you know, if, if you are all edge, if you're aware of that, then you know how to soften the edge yeah. right? and, and things yeah. like that. And I, so I, I guess 
in in simplistic terms, you know, self awareness, aware of who you are. Now, uh, you know, we do we do an exercise uh, which is which is an absolute privilege to do, um, whereby we we look back or we allow individuals to look back at mm-hmm. the their early experiences that shape them mm-hmm. as a person. And that's an unbelievable way of of actually understanding who you are and therefore the build self-awareness. And you know, it's there are it's a, it's also an incredible way of of building uh trust and yeah. with with people. And essentially, you know, I'm I'm sat, sat opposite you or in the team environment. I don't I don't really care what your job title is. Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment, I don't really care about what your responsibilities are. I want to know, I want to be able to understand you as a person. What makes you up? What are your, you know, what's, what's the fuel and the experiences that you've had that now feed into the self-awareness? But also, by doing that, you become you deepen your own self-awareness mm. and i think that's an amazing starting point then we use our the the kianis leadership index uh, as which is the self-evaluation tool and we use that as you'd score yourself between one and ten on a number of 70 characteristics that you don't know that what you're answering to you're, yeah. they're just statements and it's typically intuitive we know that it's a snapshot of moment in time it's not going to be uh, definitive about who you are but we use that as a basis of dialogue with regards to further deepen the self-awareness. Mm-hmm. So very early on, we're looking at that, that self-awareness. And then throughout the process, we bring in a number of tools and frameworks and then also other ana- um, analytics that give you um, feedback from more senior people, your peers, and more junior people in the business who know you well as a leader both data and verbatim comments um, that are anonymized that allow you to build a greater understanding as to whether your self-awareness, how you view yourself, is how others view you. Yeah. And if you imagine <coughs> if you do, when you do it in a in a psychologically safe environment, whereby also there are times whereby I need to show you edge to say uh, in in that environment, but I'm on your team. Yeah. I want you to. I want you to get better. If you want to be part of that, then brilliant. Um, if, if you don't, then we're probably not going to have worked together for that long to even get to that stage yeah. because you probably wouldn't be sat in front of me. Um, but I think that's where the self-awareness side of things, we're all, you know, the, the best operators you see are always working on that. Yeah. Um, and that's not, that's not a case of rolling over and being the person that others think you should be. It's, it's for you to take ownership of where you identify the opportunities to deliver different behaviors that mm-hmm. can deliver different results. And then, then you get to, you know, iterative process, you know, incremental growth that compounds over time. And before you know it, you're, you're growing into a different space. Yeah. I mean, I think if you, you asked me that question, that's kind of throw me off a little bit, but when, yeah. when you actually think, I think back to it, it was in a group um, environment where we had sort of broken all that kind of boundaries and barriers of psychological mm. danger so it was a completely safe place and we actually it was a bit of deep thinking about it was actually John Stiskowski who, who I've also interviewed and we talked and talked on the podcast about authenticity and bullshit and um and you know and, and sometimes yeah. we talked about he, he uses an analogy of the M6 down in England and he said if you stop at every stop 
the more authentic you are, the more north you'll go. <laughs> but when you finish in Gretna um, and be your true authentic self, you'll be surrounded by nobody because when you really are your own authentic self, then you, you speak your mind on everything. Where we always have to sort of change that element a little bit when you're speaking to people because... As I've said, if you're all edge and you're that's you, if you know if I'm all edge, my family aren't going to like me because my you know my yeah. pals aren't going to like yeah. me. Versus you know yeah. if you do, if you want everybody to like you, then you'll just be the yes guy and you'll be off at the first stop, but you'll be surrounded by by loads and loads yeah. of people. And the bullshit side of things, you know, at the quietest five minutes of my life at the stand in Edinburgh when I tried to be a stand up comedian. Really? And uh, but what I do say is that sometimes to embellish a story or to make some, you have to add that little element yeah, yeah, yeah. in. You know, Billy Connolly w- yeah. would always said that he, he called himself a liar quite a few times because his stories weren't exactly the truth. Yeah. And and he hated when people who he knew were in the audience because they'd be sitting there going, "Well, that never happened." Yeah, yeah, but yeah. if he told it as it actually happened, he wouldn't be selling out stadiums yeah. or still arenas and stages and yeah. things like that so it, it, when you start to break down yourself I, I found that a very well first of all a very cathartic experience mm. to go well, making a bit more of awareness but then also the importance of once you become more aware of yourself it helps you to be aware of other people and you can start to pick up on their nuances and things and when it comes to leading people and managing people and communicating with people you'll know there's a group of people i can say this to whereas i definitely couldn't say that to that group of people and when we're communicating it's important to know how aware you are of yourself but also your audience and when you when you're in a sporting environment how many times have we heard and we've talked about it earlier on that that people management you'll have had coaches in your own career Mm -hmm. that you you would run through a brick wall for and they had that balance absolutely spot on i mean when 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 we're trying to teach people to be more aware of others and their audience when communicating what kind of things could we look at for that then well again, again depends on depends on the, the the audience um you know i guess if i if i consider the different environments that i may be in I, if you start in a, in a team environment people people that you know and coming back to the authenticity like authentic leadership you know, is something that is is spoken about. A lot of people, when asked, you know, who is the best leader that you've been led by, they would they would uh, they would talk about authenticity, and mm-hmm. I think that is important. That, but I think for me, authenticity is about being who you are and sharing why you you are who you are mm-hmm. and what your drivers are, and you know what's important to you. Um, Authenticity, being authentic, doesn't give you the license to damage other people. No, yeah, and in, in in and and how they feel, you know. I think it's um, and and there can be a fine line, you know, when people say, "Well, I was just being authentic." Well, I, it, well, it, it, well sorry, I'd heard the, the the book Radical Candor. Yeah, it got it, it. It took a big nosedive in terms of it got a lot of bad publicity because everybody read this book as the next Bible of <laughs> yeah. how to be. But what they would say is they'd say something really horrible. Yeah. To somebody going, oh, well, I'm just being radically candor. Yeah. And uh, by, as if yeah. by saying, oh, I'm just being radically candor, it meant that, well, take it as yeah. you will. But it could still be a, a well, offensive and with, hurtful. With candor, so, and again, this is another thing that, uh, you know, candor is so important, mm-hmm. you know, with regards to with delivery of outcomes, being able to say it as it is. So we, we, talk, we talk about the candor curve, actually. So uh, if, if you imagine you've got um, candor, Candor on your horizontal axis, performance on your vertical axis, and the status quo in the bottom corner. 
And essentially, the candor, if you're asked to draw what the candor curve is, different people draw different things, but it's essentially a bell curve uh, whereby performance increases as candor increases. Mm -hmm. And then you get into an area what we would call the optimum candor zone, whereby candor is high, but there's also a cliff edge whereby you can be candid but you're also getting into this dangerous territory whereby you damage people's confidence. Yeah. And that's where performance drops off. It's a cliff edge of performance. When you re when you reach, and, and typically what we're saying is um, when you reach the stage whereby you're, you're being so candid that you are damaging people's confidence or how they feel about themselves or a, team's, a team environment like that, you, you fall off the cliff, the, the cliff edge. And that's incredibly difficult to come back to, back from. So I think that's something when it comes to candor, being able to call things out mm -hmm. um, is, is very important. High performing environments, you need, you need candor. But there is also this cliff edge. There is a precipice that a number of people, you know, when you, when you hold the mirror up to them <laughs> and ask them, you know, where they might put themselves on it, they're saying, I'm a bit close to the precipice. Let's yeah. dial that back a little bit. And it might just be that balancing a little bit more warmth within there that, so the candor, the, the edge doesn't necessarily come down that much. You're just bringing a few parts of warmth into the equation that little bit more. Um, but it is, you know, that, that for me is, is a really important dynamic. Yeah. Um, and you know, I have this with, with my wife all the time. You know, in, <laughs> India, India will say to me, just say what you want. Yeah. You know, because I'll probably dance around some things um, and try and come about it from a warmth perspective. She'll be like, yeah, just just tell me what you want. Tell me mm -hmm. what you need. So, she, And she might be on the other side, whereby she's so candid that, you know, I, I, go, <laughs> I, I go into the corner and sit, sit crying. Yeah. Uh, but no, it's, you know, it's, it's my awareness, again, when it comes to where, where I've been reflecting on things uh, and where, where I want to be mm -hmm. is an area that is a constant, constant uh, scenario and one that as you referenced earlier on can change from person to person so you know delivering to delivering a message to an audience you've got to uh, being able to engage people throughout knowing that everybody's wired differently everyone has different backgrounds and different drivers and uh, you know are, have different things going on in life at that time being able to engage them you know sometimes you've got to call call a name you know yeah. Graham yeah you know, in, in, in that team meeting to be able to get, get people's attention. Otherwise, other times, you know, see people are fully engaged. You've got to be able to, uh, you know, sometimes change the, the operating rhythm of things. But, you know, the, the authenticity bit is, is, is something that is a difficult one to manage because at times you've got to, you've got to understand what you stand for. That's the starting point. Yeah. Because then you can be authentic. And then when you bring other factors into play, you understand self-awareness, seeing others' perspectives. So where are the other people? Where's my audience in this regard? Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, searching for the common good. So yeah. is the message that I'm delivering for the common good? And is it going to propel us forwards? Or is there a danger that I'm being candid and authentic here and it's going to damage people's confidence? I mean, it's a lot of it's trust as well. If you know that if you... If, an audience or a person if someone's saying something and you know that they're not being their self here they're just any tell that you can get where you go i'm not getting that yeah. suddenly if you detect there's a lack of authenticity in that your level of trust completely goes yeah uh, it's, it's very similar to that you know you've got to try and get try, trying to trying to build back trust is is difficult yeah um 
trying to generate, you know, I, again, I'm always interested as someone who is probably too trusting in people as soon as I meet them. Right. You know, I, I, I almost give trust for people to lose. Mm -hmm. Others, others have it over to hand it to the individual to build trust in them. Um, and there's lots of, lots of areas in between. Uh, but you know, how, how do you, how do you build trust? You know, being, being exactly. aware enough as to how you're going to build trust individually or across a team or an organization mm -hmm. is something that doesn't just happen by magic. You need to be, you need to have an intention and have a bit of a plan as to how you go about doing it. Yeah. And shaping your communication and how you go about doing that as well. The last wee bit that we always ask, I always ask guests is what their key fundamentals are in communication. You've had a career that's seen you playing at international level, captaining Scotland and, and obviously now into the, the business world. I'm putting you on the spot a little bit, <laughs> but from your whole career that you've had, if you were to start to look at the key fundamentals of communication, what would you say they are? I think it, it varies. I'm not trying to sit on the fence here, but and I guess I might end up talking my, myself into the fundamentals that that kind of wrap around all of them. Mm -hmm. um, but I think like clarity, I think the, the, the clarity from the get go is to firstly, you know, who's the audience and what's the message that I'm looking to, to get across to them is, is a, is a really good starting mm -hmm. point mm -hmm. because, you know, if I reflect, if I, if I think about whether as a, as a, you know, a, a captain in, in sports or, I launched and ran my own business afterwards. So somebody in that role whereby you're you're making decisions all the time and you're communicating all the time. Or now into working with leaders and leadership teams or the broadcast side of things. It's the, you know, who's who's the audience mm -hmm. and what's going to land best for them is a really good starting point. And in keynotes, I I'm always really conscious that if I'm delivering a keynote to a client, I want to know about who the audience is, yeah. you know, where, where are their pain points or where's their anxiety focused at mm -hmm. the moment? Where's the business at on the whole? What's, what's my audience going to, how, how are they going to be feeling? Because then I can start shaping yeah. a story a, around that. And so I think being able to have clarity as to, to what, who the audience are and what, what the message is that you're looking to deliver. Um, the listening side of things is, is a big part of that. From there, I guess it's it's building out the bit that's going to land, okay. And I think story is always a factor within mm -hmm. that. Yes, there are data points, there are um, experiences worth sharing. There's a decision-making framework, maybe in how you go about doing things. But I think being able to bring it to life through story is something that I always feel. Um, and you know, Papa, Papa wouldn't just talk about a player and what they actually looked like. Yeah. You know, he'd, he'd talk about, you know, the late, great Doddy Weir, you know, being like, he, he runs like he's a mad giraffe. Yeah. So, you know, that that brings it to life. Or, you know, Brian Redpath, former coach of mine, he's as slippery as a baggie up a border burn. <laughs> you know, these these little moments that, that paint a picture. Chuck Jacobson, my old teammate, when, I, you know, I was, I did, um, I did the, the tribute evening to Papa Murrayfield after he passed away and I went around, you know, Chris Patterson asked him, you know, did Papa ever give any one-liners? He was like, oh, none that I can remember because Chris Patterson never kicked a ball like three-punder haggis. Um, but Chuck <laughs> Jacobson said to me, he said, he said, said Gunn, my favourite my favorite thing your Papa ever said about me, he said, 
There he is, Alan Jacobson from Preston Pans. He's like an oxo cube on legs. <laughs> so I think for me, it's um, communicating anything. You want to get clarity of message. You want to bring people's senses yeah. to life. So mm -hmm. you want you want people to to you want to drive emotion or insight through the through the senses. You know, paint the picture that allows them to see what see what it is that mm -hmm. you're look, the message that you're looking to get across and feel the message that you're going to get across, not just be told what it is that you're trying to deliver. Yeah. You know, and that's where where data can become a part of it. And it can feed it, but it's got to be able to to feed the story. Um, and I think there's got to be a, a balance of um, challenge and you know victory or happiness or um, fun that comes through within it. And I think if you if you build all of that together within the message that you're communicating, you're not going to go an awful an awful way uh, wrong yeah. within it, um, and I, you know, I te context is so important because if I'm a if I'm a coach standing at half time, giving needing to give a team who's up against it a, a rocket, then there's not going to be that much fun or humour within it. No, but what I do need to do is paint a picture of what my expectation is, uh, bring the emotion to life, but also get into the detail of how they're going to deliver that. I think there's the how at the end of the the what and the why yeah. needs to be really important because then people need to feel empowered to go and or enabled to go and deliver um, the the message that I'm looking to to get across them. Brilliant. Well, look, that's been absolutely fantastic, and um, you know, I'm all set for going down the park and having a wee run about a rugby ball this <laughs> afternoon. I think Ron, if you want to join me, but how can anyone find you? Is it social through social media? How can they find out what you're doing? Keep up to date with what's going on, or even if they've listened to this and want to maybe get in touch with Kianis, and how how can they go around doing that? Then? Yeah, yeah. So uh, Rory Lawson at Kianis .com, um or any of the socials. You know, whether it's Twitter or Instagram or mm. LinkedIn. You Brilliant. know, I think I think all of this stuff. I'm always. Uh, I'm always happy to have conversations with cheap people and, and share any insights I've got that can make them better. Well, Rory, thank you so much for coming in today. I really, really appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks, Graham.